Well, I'm going to ask you once again this morning to uh, find that little book called Zephaniah tucked away towards the end of the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 2 today. We're going to cover the entire chapter 2, which if, as, uh, if you know, uh, that can be a task for us to get through uh, 15 verses on a Sunday morning. So I don't want to take any more time. I'm not going to, uh, uh, we're going to dive right in as, as quickly as we can here. Zephaniah chapter 2, if you remember Zephaniah is almost at the end of the Old Testament, not quite there. I think it's about the fourth of the last book, but all of them are fairly short. We're making a fairly quick journey through Zephaniah. Uh, we're actually, this is message number three, I think, and uh, I'm expecting maybe only two more messages to uh, cover the chapter three. Together, we're to be foraged like we are the straw or the stubble. We are to come together. This, again, is not a theme only in Zephaniah. It's what God's people have done all through the pages. For example, if I were to flip back, which I will do and just read a verse for you. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when the Moabites and the Ammonites, listen, there's those people, but this happened before this took place. When they come and they, they bring a horde, a massive army against the Israelites, and a man named Jehoshaphat is the king of Israel, what does he do? He asks the people to gather together. It says in chapter 20, verse 4 of 2 Chronicles, that Judah, the nation, assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So their response in the face of impending invasion was to gather together, was to come together. We see this if we just, I'm just, I'm going to do this kind of chronologically. As we go through the book of Nehemiah, as the, the exiles come back and they begin to reestablish proper worship of God. In chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we covered this a couple of years ago. We studied through the book of Nehemiah. A couple, uh, in chapter 8, in verse 1, it says, The Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the house of Eshkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its own place, all the lands of the nations. Verse 12. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This, this is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. God, would you teach us from your word this morning? We've just heard, we've just been encouraged, we've just been reminded that your word is foundational, and so we ask you this morning to teach us from it. 
May you receive glory and honor for you have so wonderfully preserved and given us what we need for life and godliness. We thank you. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after two weeks, if you've been here and you've been digging into study, after two weeks, we have had what I felt like has been a sledgehammer coming, driving down the truth of God's wrath and judgment against us. I don't know how you've been feeling about that. And if you know me at all, you know that it's, it's difficult to just keep talking about how bad it's going to be and how bad it's going to be and how bad it's going to be. And today, I'm thankful that I entitled my message that we're going to see a glimmer of hope. And if you uh, were paying attention, you might rightly say, you know, there was still a lot of judgment in the stuff you read today. And that's true. However, I want us to see that as we move through, there is going to be a glimmer of hope. There's going to be a door cracked open. There's going to be a reality there for us that is so important. And I stand, I stand by what I think the Lord is doing when we read books and study through books like Zephaniah. I stand by the fact that it's worth it for us to sit and wait and to be quiet before the Lord and to allow the weight of his wrath and judgment against the sin of the world, against the sin of mankind, against us and what we rightfully deserve in our shaking of our fist or our mixing of our allegiance or thumbing of our nose, whatever you want to use, what we rightly deserve from God who is holy and right, to just let that sit for long enough until we begin to see how amazing it is that there is a glimmer of hope. How desperately we want to long for and reach for that glimmer so that we will once and for all let go of what this world has to offer us. We'll once and for all say, I don't care what I can amass here. I don't care to feed my flesh. I don't care to operate according to those principles, for I long for a city whose builder is God. I long for a place that is not like this place. Now, to guide us through today's sermon, I, I thought it might be helpful. These were things that were running through my head. So I thought it might be helpful to frame it, uh, sort of the, the impetus of the message, to frame it through the use of some questions. That as we, we would, might ask ourselves some questions. And at this point, if we're tracking through with the people of Israel and they're hearing the message of Zephaniah, I would suggest that this might be a question that we're facing. Because though God said almost at the very beginning that I'm going to utterly wipe out everything from the face of the earth, he thus far in chapter one has focused almost exclusively on how Israel will suffer, on how they will be judged on how God's wrath will come against those who have pulled their allegiance back or who have mixed their allegiance together, or who, though they have known about who God is, have said, I'm not going to give you my allegiance. And you might be saying, well, what about those people that have never even attempted to honor God? What about those people, God, that you're talking about to use in judging us? Because God is very clear about that, right? I'm going to bring Assyria from the north. I'm going to allow this country to come in. And they look at their own history and they see the Philistines overran us all the time. The Ammonites come against us all the time. The Amalekites, all these people have, have, have pushed in and they don't even try to honor you, God. What about all those people? And we today might say, that's fine, Merlin, you talk so clearly about how God hates all of our sin, but we're trying, right? What about those people that don't even try? This, by the way, is the same question that Habakkuk asks, if you read that short book. That's exactly the question he's asking God. How can you allow these godless nations to punish 
those of us who have tried to follow after you. This, I think, is where the first glimmer of hope comes in. I'm going to jump in the middle of the text we read, because I'll tell you why in a little bit, but the middle of the text we read, Zephaniah 2.11 makes it very clear that this is an issue of allegiance once again, and makes it very clear that God says, no, no, it's not just with you, Israel. It is with the entire world. He says, the Lord will be awesome against them. Now, he's referring to a specific group, but actually, I'm going to try to demonstrate to you that he's actually referring to all the entire text from verse 4 to verse 15. The nations mentioned in those, in those verses. The Lord will be awesome against them. And I say that because he says, for he will famish, he will starve out all the gods of the earth. No God exempted. No territory out of his reach. No regional place where this God will still maintain some foothold. But he will famish out all the gods of the earth. And to him, this is why I say it's about allegiance, to him shall bow down each in its place. All the lands of the nations. Now, when you read through the text we read through this morning, especially looking at verses 4 to 15, he names some nations, and you might just say, okay, he's naming some people that, that haven't been very friendly against Israel. But I'm telling you, in the naming of these nations, God is instructing the people of Israel who might be asking, well, what about all those people out there? If you say it's going to be total judgment, then why are you just talking about us? I want you to see that if you were an Israelite and you saw yourself right there in the middle, which is where they saw themselves, and you begin to mention the nations that God is mentioning, first of all, he reaches out and he says, you have these people on the seacoast living to the west of you. They're known as the Philistines. Those first verses are referring to all the cities and towns and the peoples of the Philistines. And God says, I'm going to make sure that they're wiped out. I'm going to make sure they're judged for who they are. And then he says, let's go the other direction to the east. You have people called Moab, Moabites and Ammonites. And for their taunting and their, their, their role in what they've done to my people, I'm going to judge them. And in both of those instances, he clearly refers to a remnant of Judah that gets to take over those areas. That gets to receive that inheritance. And he says, but I'm not done yet because then I'm going to go to the south, which is where the Cushites are from. This, by the way, most people say the Cushites are the Ethiopians. So we're reaching way down in Africa. We're going to go down to the south of the Cushites, and then he ends by saying, well, guess where the Assyrians are? They're to the north. What has God just done? If you think about geography, if you think about the places he's mentioning and geography-wise, what God has just done, he said, if you're going to ask the question in your heart, what about the rest of everyone else? Or is this really going to be complete? I will go ahead and name nations from every corner of where you know the world to be and tell you that it's going to extend that far. I'm telling you this as the first initial glimmer of hope because it's reminding us that though the judgment begins in the house of God, we dare not become critical of what God is doing or begin to think, well, maybe why is God so hard on us and why can he not be hard on those people out there? And God is saying, don't you worry about that. I've got those corners covered. Let me remind you that I will be awesome against them and I will famish all the gods of the earth and all of them will bow down in their places, every land of the earth. It sounds a little bit like the New Testament words when it says because of what Jesus has done in emptying himself in Philippians chapter two, because of that, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at his the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
right? Can I just say it again to make sure it comes at us and we receive it this morning? Make no mistake. Every person, every God, every supposed God, every power, every authority, supposed authority, every, everything you could think of will come under the subjection and give allegiance to God at the end. It is going to happen. That includes you and I, by the way, right? It's going to happen. One thing that is clear through the thread from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, that though all kinds of events happen, and there's times when we want to, in our humanity, question whether God is still sovereign, whether it's actually going to happen. One thread is unmistakably clear from front to finish here, is that God is God, and no one will usurp his authority from him. Once again... We have a verse towards the end of this that I want to highlight for us just to, just to stick in our brains and have us think about because it's the attitude of sinful men that is bringing on God's judgment. Last week in chapter one, we talked about those who say in their hearts, these were people in Jerusalem, those who say in their hearts, the Lord is not going to do good, nor is he going to do evil. This time, as he's talking about the cities out there, he reveals the, another glance at that sinful attitude that's in the heart. He says in verse 15, this is the exultant city that lived securely and said in her heart, what did the city say? It's not the city, you know this, right? It's the people. It's the, it's the worldview of the people that live there. It's the way of life, the, the viewpoint, the, the, the vantage point, the philosophy of the people who live there. I am, and there's no one else. It's just me. If I take care of myself, nothing else matters. I have no one to please but myself. And I will do everything I can to please myself because I am and there's no one else. Of course, this flies directly in the face of God who reveals himself to Moses. And he says, if I go to the people, who should I say is sending me? And God says what? I am. I am the one who is. Once again, can I tell you again, this is always going to be framed in a matter of allegiance because now the question is, who gets allegiance? Who gets your allegiance? Is it God or is it yourself? Because that's really where the battle usually lies, right? Sure, there's other things out there competing for our allegiance, no question. Satan would love us to give his allegiance to him. The world, just by the fact of how the world operates, would love to give their allegiance to him. But ultimately, all of that actually comes back to our allegiance as being given to right here what I want, who I am. The exultant city that's living securely. Boy, if this does not describe American culture, I don't know how else you can in just such a short verse. Right? You think these words are only from Zephaniah's day back at that day, back to those people? People haven't changed, have they? The exultant city that lives securely and says, we are, there's no one else. I am. There's no one else. However, I ask you now, when God begins to make it clear, and I hope through chapter 1 and now through chapter 2, God has made it abundantly clear that his wrath is coming, that his judgment will come upon the sin of the world, that it will be a day where God pours out 
and we talked about it last week, that day will come in fulfillments, right? Because that day has already come in some aspects, but the day is ultimately still coming. And then we begin to ask another question, and I want to use the photo I've been using in my background the whole time. Because if you're standing in the place where this photo is being taken, and you're watching this massive, scary-looking storm approaching, I would suggest there's probably a good question that you might ask yourself. What can I do to shelter myself from this storm? Am I going to stay standing out in the middle of the field and watch this fury come and just be there? Or am I going to try to find some place to find shelter? What would most of us sane people do? We're going to say, what can be done, right? And I think that's the question that the people of Israel ask themselves. And it's the question that we today, bringing this text over into our world, are going to ask ourselves. Can anything be done? What do I do in the face of this impending doom, this utter destruction? Can anything actually be done? And to that, I want to crack that door, the glimmer of hope open even wider. Because I skipped over and I read the first, I focused on verses 4 to 15. And I now want to come back and look at verses 1 to 3. Because they're a lot more fun to talk about. But I want to look at these verses, the very first verse. This is how he begins chapter 2. He says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before. And I'm going to stop there because I want the before to hold. Because I want you to see something. When you look at verse 2, and you see that it begins with the word before, and you see that that word before shows up four times in one verse, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before, before it's too late, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, and he restates it again, before there comes upon you the day, the specific day of the anger of the Lord. Now, if the word before is there, what does that indicate? If he says before over and over again, do this before, do this before, do this before, what does that mean? That means something can be done, right? That's the answer to the question. If I would tell you, get out of here before this place collapses, what does that mean? It's going to collapse, but you have time to get out still. If I say, make sure you get this done before that happens, you know there's something you can still do. You know there's an action you can still take. You know that there's a glimmer of hope. You know that there's something that can be done to save you or to hide you or to shelter you from God's awful wrath. Amen, praise God. Which means the question then, of course, is if something can be done, what is that? Right? That question has to follow hard on the heels of the question we just asked. If something can be done, what is that? What should I do? And I'm telling you the answer is going to be right here as we look at these verses, at least the beginnings of this answer. And it begins with the verse I already read to you. Verse 1, gather together, yes, gather, you who are so far to this point have been without shame, have refused to hide your, or to, to cover yourself, have refused to yield to the Lord. Gather together. I want to introduce you to one of the, fir the first of two key Hebrew words today. Again, you know how I am. I get a little nerdy about this stuff. You don't have to know these words if you don't want to. I think they're going to help you understand the text. You don't have to remember the word for that, for that matter. But this word is the word koshash. I think I'm saying it right. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Koshash. Now, I love this word. I'm getting to love this word because the word koshash means this. It means to forage for straw or stubble. 
to forage, to go gather, to go look for straw or stubble. Or in a figurative sense, then it means to gather together. But I love this word because as we look at that word kashash, there are other Hebrew words that mean just get together. Actually, I'll read a few of, you, few of them in just a little bit for you. But there are other words that mean just gather together, like, like, like assemble yourself. But this word has a clear implication, not of just the action, but something behind it, right? When I'm gathering stubble, what does that mean? What's the stubble? The leftovers, thank you. So in this verb to gather together is also hidden inside of it the idea that God has this concept of a remnant of what's left over, and we're gonna be exposed to that. Actually, did you notice already that when you read in verse seven, when he's talking about the judgment that comes to the Philistines, he says, the remnant of the house of Judah is going to take that land over. And when he's talking about the, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites, he talks about uh, the survivors of my nation. We're gonna pick this theme up, we're gonna see it very strongly in chapter three again, so we're gonna keep, continue talking about it. But it's not just in Zephaniah, friends. It's, it's not just there, it's through the whole book that any time God's judgment comes, God preserves a remnant, a portion. And in this word, we find already that idea that if something can be done to hide from God, God's wrath or to shelter us from God's wrath, we must be in that remnant. We must be in that group, that, that, that leftover, the leftovers. Now, mind you, the leftover is not from God's perspective. It's from the world's perspective. But we are to gathered together. We are to be foraged like we are the straw or the stubble. We are to come together. This, again, is not a theme only in Zephaniah. It's what God's people have done all through the pages. For example, if I were to flip back, which I will do and just read a verse for you, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when the Moabites and the Ammonites, listen, there's those people, but this happened before this took place. When they come and they, they bring a horde, a massive army against the Israelites, and a man named Jehoshaphat is the king of Israel, what does he do? He asks the people to gather together. It says in chapter 20, verse 4 of Second Chronicles, that Judah, the nation, assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So their response in the face of impending invasion was to gather together was to come together. We see this if we just, I'm just, I'm gonna do this kind of chronologically. As we go through the book of Nehemiah, as the, the exiles come back and they begin to reestablish proper worship of God. In chapter eight of Nehemiah, we covered this a couple of years ago, we studied through the book of Nehemiah. A couple, uh, in chapter eight, in verse one, it says, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law that Moses, of the Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And a chapter later, verse 1 of chapter 9 says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. They said, what do we do when we got to reestablish proper worship of God? We've got to gather together. We've got to be drawn to each other. We've got to come together as God's people. When Esther faced the, the, the most... Uh, difficult task of her life and she had needed courage because she was going to go intercede on behalf of her people. What does she do? Well, read Esther chapter 4. What does she do? She tells Mordecai, she says, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do and then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So what does she say? If we're going to have God intercede on our behalf, we have got to gather together. We've got to get together, right? 
when Joel was prophesying, and again, this is going to touch really close to Zephaniah, but when Joel was prophesying and he saw the spiritual apathy of the nation, and he said, something has got to change the spiritual apathy of God's people. This is what he says in verse 13 of Joel chapter 1. He says, I'm sorry, verse 14, consecrate a fast Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. I went to four places in the Old Testament. I could have dug out more places. I could have looked through the annals of history and seen the same thing, brothers and sisters, that when we need God in some way, that when something has to happen, that when we need to find shelter of some kind from something, the answer or the call of God's people is to gather together. You see now why the writer of Hebrews says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And more and more as we see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The day of the wrath of God. The same day Zephaniah is talking about, right? Gather. Come together. I tell you before, and I've told you this before, I tell you again. That came out wrong. I have told you before, and I tell you again. We cannot in any way, shape, or form maintain that we are part of the body of Christ and not be part of the body of Christ. By that I mean to say we can't claim that we don't need a church, that we don't need a fellowship, that we can just sort of be out there on our own and it's my relationship with God and it's just between him and I. That cannot be supported anywhere from any of this. In fact, the stuff I'm telling you this morning goes directly in the face of that. The church exists to be gathered together. We exist to belong to each other, to be together. This, what we're doing this morning, is right and proper and good. And not just on this morning. Other times, anytime we face any need for help, what should we do? Anytime we need to be sheltered in any way, what should we do? Well, of course, we cry out to the Lord. We're going to come to those things. But there's clear impetus here for the people of God to gather together to be the remnant. You understand that we are, we are the minority across the world, right? True biblical Christianity is the minority across the world. Jesus was not afraid of saying those kind of things, right? What did he say? Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many are on it, but narrow is the way that leads to the kingdom and few find it. It's not the thrust of the message, but in the face of Zephaniah, I would suggest to us, it's words like that of Jesus that should strike fear and trembling into our hearts. That we're not so presumptuous that we have found the way. That we do exactly what we're going to read here next. Because gathering together is not enough. I should have gone on here. Because he gives further impetus of what should happen, right? You don't just get together and say, well, now we're going to have a party together. Or we're going to have... We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spend time playing Monopoly together. We're going to, like, talk about the latest fashion together. We're going to make sure we talk about who won last night's game. We're going to make sure that we have a lot of good food. We're going to make sure that we, you know, are protecting each other. We're going to stockpile our stuff and make sure that we can, we can endure through whatever tough time is coming. What does he say we should do? Again, I see a word that shows up three times in verse 3. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. 
We should long after something. Here's the second Hebrew word. We had the word, uh, we had the word kashash. This one sounds a little bit like it. And it's bakash. Bakash means to search out or to strive after. It's no big surprise because that's what the word seek means. We understand that. So this is not some earth-shattering new definition for you. But it does mean what it means. We should seek the Lord. We should strive after God. I've talked about this before too. It's all about our, 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 what, what direction we're facing, right? Excuse me. We can say we're this far along in the journey, but if I'm facing the wrong direction or if I'm towing the line and seeing what I can get away with, I'm not honoring this Hebrew word of bakash because I'm to seek the Lord. I'm to yearn for him. I'm to go after. I'm going to see how I can please him. And when I'm gathered together, that's what we're doing together. We're seeking the Lord. We're seeking righteousness. We're seeking humility. Let's just begin with that first phrase there because that's, I think, the overarching one, actually. We're to seek the Lord. We're to look for him. You know, the honest answer is that all of us are seeking something with our lives. All of us are seeking something. It's just, it's just what we do. We're after something all the time. This instructs us that if we want to have a glimmer of hope hiding us from the impending doom of God's wrath against sin, then we should seek the Lord. Isaiah said it this way, and I, I brought this. We, I, there could have been, I, I, had, I had a whole not a whole, I had, a, I had a, a, a quarter page full of verse references for this section that I could have read. I'm not going to read all them for you. We're still going to get to a lot of scripture, however. But Isaiah said it this way, and I really appreciated these words. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look what he says. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, if you want to pursue something, why don't you pursue where you came from? Why don't you pursue your creator? Why don't you pursue the one in whose image you were made? That's where you're going to find what you're looking for. That's where you're going to find the answers you want. That's where you're going to find shelter from the storm that's coming. Seek the Lord. Isaiah also said you should seek the Lord while he may be found. But I'm so grateful this morning I can stand up here and I can tell you that in God's word, there's a promise made to us when we seek. This time from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 13 says that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God does not hide from you. By the way, can I just insert one of the biggest deceptions that we tend to face is when we say, I'm seeking after God, but I just can't find him. And we believe that as if it were true. Because this verse makes it clear. There's a promise, right? But what's it based on? When I'm seeking after God with my whole heart, right? I saw a couple of you nodding already, so you already know. You already know, right? And there's, therein lies the deception, because many times I think we want to pretend or maintain that we're seeking after God, and we actually aren't. We might want him to solve a problem that's right in front of us. We might want to please the people in our lives. We might want to play both sides of the fence and mix our allegiance. But when we seek the Lord with all our heart, Scripture's clear, and I could have gone to a few other verses, but when we seek the Lord with all of our heart, Scripture's clear that God will be found by us. He doesn't hide himself. When we come after him, he reveals himself to us. That is, after all, what faith is, Right? Those who believe that God exists, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, Zephaniah fleshes out what seeking the Lord looks like. We seek the Lord, and 
two of the primary ways that that comes out is that we seek righteousness and we seek humility. We seek being right with God and we seek being submitted to God. He is our creator after all. If we're gonna look and search after the one, the rock from which we were hewn, the quarry from which we were dug, then we put ourselves in a position of submission to him, of allegiance to him, of humility before him. I would maintain to you that the, 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 the fleshing out or the definition of seeking the Lord actually carries in it or is found in seeking to be right with him, making sure that we are doing everything we can to be right with him and seeking to be submitted to him, seeking to be humble before him, making sure that we understand the relationship between us. That's why the Proverbs begins off by saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because that's that right relationship, that humility, that, that, that humbling of ourselves before him. Seek righteousness, seek humility. But I remind you what you're really after is in the last part of verse three. What we're really after, what we're really looking for, the answer to our question really still is found in this, that when we seek the Lord, when we seek righteousness, when we seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Let's keep it in the text here, right? This is what they're after. This is the question they want answered. If we gather together and if we seek the Lord, if we seek to be right with him, if we seek humility, if we get our priorities correct and we humble ourselves before God, will that in fact hide us on the day of anger? I remind you again, it's a good place to remind you that Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. So his very name, the very person God chose to speak through, his name demonstrated the answer that God is unfolding here. Now, in this context of Zephaniah, we can and will see how God hid a remnant. How God said, if you are willing to seek after me and seek righteousness and humility, I will hide you from the coming storm. I will preserve a remnant. For our sakes today, I want to pull it out of that and help us to see how God is actually telling that story as a type or a foreshadow or a smaller version of the big story that God is telling all of us. And that is on the great day of God's wrath, that day that's referred to, I referred to earlier, the end of time, is there something that can hide us on that day? And I want you to see that the answer is, of course, found in Scripture. For example, let me turn to, I'm going to read them for you. Let me turn to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah chapter 61, this is how Isaiah starts, and this should sound familiar to you, I hope. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the, to the captives, and the openings of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God but to comfort, uh, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now let me just stop there and ask you to consider those verses. I read them very quickly, and I realize you didn't read them up until this point and just hear them, so they came very quickly but in these verses we see a picture being painted right 
Look at the devastation and match it with the devastation of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord. But he talks about the fact that there's, there's hope there for people, right? That he's going to turn mourning into oil of gladness and a faint spirit into a garment of praise and ashes into a beautiful headdress. Right? There's hope there. There's somebody. And who are those somebodies? I point us all the way back because the very first things he said, he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me and he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, let me tell you, that translation of poor, that word poor is the exact same word that's used in Zephaniah when you say you should seek humility. So it's really referring to the humble, the broken down, the contrite, the meek is another word. It's a new in the New Testament, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the It's the same concept. We're talking about the same frame of reference. He's bringing good news to the poor. Now, of course, we see these words in Isaiah, and they meant something to the people of Israel. In fact, I would tell you they meant something to the people that were listening to Zephaniah, and they found a fulfillment there. But we know ultimately a man named Jesus came on the scene, and in Luke chapter 4, we read these words. He came to Nazareth. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. What do you think he's going to read? Well, of course, you probably already know. And you know that you're gonna, I'm going to connect it back to what I just read to you. But here's what he read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, God put a plan in motion that was going to be for the ultimate hiding if you're going to put it that way. The ultimate hiding in the face of God's judgment. But I'm not done there because I think we can look back and say, the psalmist wrote words like this. Again, I'm going to just flip and read them for you so I can read them correctly. I could try to do it by memory, but I don't think it's going to go too well. So I'm going to, I'm going to read them for you. Psalm 32, verse 7. Just a, just a little snippet in there. The psalmist said these words about God. Listen to these words. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. God is a hiding place for us. But I'll tell you, the psalmist made that declaration, and it found its, its, its form of fulfillment in all kinds of ways. But I'll tell you, the ultimate one is when Paul made this declaration when he wrote to the Thessalonians. He says this in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. God made a plan to hide all of us from his wrath. He will always preserve a remnant. It is found by those who will gather together and seek the Lord, who will seek righteousness and seek humility, and they can receive what God has done through Jesus Christ, who himself said, I came to fulfill exactly what God sent me to do, to provide a hiding place, to provide a protection, a covering for those who are going to face the wrath of God. Let me read for you yet this morning two passages. My time is moving on, and I don't want to take advantage of it. But I want to read what I believe are two New Testament fulfillments. I give them to you, or New Testament 
passages that parallel these verses, the glimmer of hope that's given to us in, uh, in the first couple of verses there of Zephaniah 2. And I give them to you simply that you may, uh, hopefully with my encouragement, just chew on them this week. This is what I believe are the New Testament correspondence to Zephaniah saying, gather together and seek the Lord, seek righteousness and seek humility. First passage I want to give to you, first couple of verses, is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think it's Paul's way of rephrasing the seeking the Lord and seeking righteousness and seeking humility. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Perhaps even more clearly, he said these words to the Colossians in chapter 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. There he uses the word seek, doesn't he? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then listen to what he says. It's almost like he would have read Zephaniah sometime in his life. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, at my encouragement, would you spend time this week just contemplating those two passages, those two sections, if we want to find a New Testament, New Covenant fulfillment of what it looks like to seek the Lord and to seek humility and to seek righteousness, I think we found it there. But I want to find these words yet to close because I want to tie it back to Zephaniah one more time with us. I want you to see that if the door of hope that was cracked open is found in the words gather and seek, I want to go back to that word gather I want to remind you that Jesus said something that I think really is important to us in the context of today's message. He said lots of things that are important to us. But in this specific context of gathering, I remind you that Jesus said these words in Matthew 18, 20. He said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's the reason we're to gather together. Because then God is here. And it's God being here that is our shelter, that is hiding us, that is our salvation. Because after all, the refrain the whole way through the book of Zephaniah so far, and it won't stop till we get there, has been these words from the end of Zephaniah. Right? Say them with me. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. When we're gathered together, Jesus says, I am there. And when Zephaniah has boldly proclaimed to us that when God is there, that's where you're going to find a mighty one to save. That's where you're going to find a shelter. That's where you're going to find a way to be hidden from the coming wrath of God. That's the glimmer of hope that you have. That's the door being opened in the face of this. I don't mean a storm. Because the storm that's described in these pages is of a far more epic proportion than anything that I can take a picture of. I didn't take that picture. Anyway, would you stand? I'm going to close. It's a good way to, uh, just a good reminder for us. And my prayer for you today is, I'm going to pray together here, but my prayer for us today is that we would not try to remove the weight of the coming of God's judgment, but that we would recognize that God has made a way for us to be hidden, to be put in an ark. We can, we can receive what he has done when we're willing to honor what his word tells us to do. 
God, thank you for these words this morning. Thank you that we have opportunity, that while today is called today, we can uh, receive the encouragement to not harden our hearts, but to seek you, to come after you. And your word is very clear that what you have given to us, you offer to us without cost. You have paid the price, Jesus, you have paid the price. You have offered yourself in our place so that we might find salvation. We might find a way to be able to stand in the face of your wrath. It is not us who stand, but Christ. And when we hide ourselves in you, Jesus, then we will be safe. So help us, God. God, there's so many. Help us, God, to put together the things that you want us to put together in our hearts, in our minds, as a church, as individuals, as families. Help us to put those things together and help us to honor your word. You have opened that door for us today and you've reminded us that if we want to be found in you, that we are to gather together as the body of Christ and we are to seek you. We are to seek being right with you. We are to seek humility. All of those things require us to turn away from ourselves, both the gathering and the seeking to see ourselves as part of something bigger, to surrender our own needs and self to the, to the body as a whole, to the head, to Jesus, to you, God. To seek after you means to put you first and to put something above my own wishes and desires by necessity, but help us to seek righteousness and to seek humility. Thank you, Father. I thank you for a body of believers who I believe is there. But we will continue to cry out to you, God, and say, oh, help us. We're not done yet. We're not there yet. We have not arrived. We have still places we need to turn away from the world. We need to let go of what we want to do. We need, oh, well, I, need to, I need to have my brain, my mind renewed uh, by you, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, that I may can, can approve what your good, perfect, pleasing will is. And that begins when I submit, when I offer myself as a living sacrifice to you, when I turn away and turn to you. God, more than anything I pray this morning, that if there's anyone who is feeling the accusation or the weight or the, the desperation of either the coming judgment or of, the, of their own sinfulness or the choices they've made or just the discouragement, the oppression from the enemy that just beat, that's beating. If there's anybody in that place this morning, I pray through the Holy Spirit, by the power of the name of Jesus Christ, that you would show them, point them to this glimmer of hope that when they are gathered together with your people and seeking you, that you will hide them from the day of wrath. I pray, God, that that would give us a hope and a buoyancy and a joy and a peace in the midst of just not fun stuff happening around us. Thank you, Father. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.